Building a successful real estate career requires you to adapt, pivot, and constantly master new skills. We're Katie and Daniel Steinfeld. We've built our own innovative brokerage, and in this podcast, we've assembled actionable tips and strategies that you can implement to take your business to its maximum potential. It's time to level up. Level up. All right. Hi, everyone. I hope you guys are all doing well. I am so excited today because uh, we are with Sarah Kalki. Sarah is um, just an incredible agent, an incredible leader um, in our industry, and just such a great person to follow along with. Um, she's done a lot of amazing things, which obviously we'll get into. Um, but thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So you were just named uh, recently, I think, the number two individual real estate agent in Edmonton. Is that correct? That is true. And speaking to our market, uh, we've been in a recession for the last five years. We're the opposite of Toronto, but scarcity is scarcity. So we have a scarcity of buyers. You have a scarcity of sellers. Um, so the number one guy only sells foreclosures. So that tells you what's going on in our market. Like a regular customer can call him. Uh, but he won't. He only deals with banks and lawyers. So that's the state of affairs <laughs> where we're from right now. Yeah. Wow. So from an actual people and relationship perspective, you are the clear number one. Then, not that <laughs> there's relationships and foreclosures. <laughs> not that there's a relationship yeah. and foreclosures. But it's, yeah, no. That, it's a different. Well, yeah. congratulations. Well, yeah. Well, thank you. And you've been doing so well over many years. How long have you been in this business? Uh, well, I started in real estate with no intention to be a real estate agent. I answered the phone at the front desk of a Remax office in my summer job in university in like 2003 and then became an assistant for five years. Same thing, like never intending to be a real estate agent. I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to do all sorts of other stuff so I could buy a horse. And then by 2010, I was kind of entrenched in the industry. So um, somewhat reluctantly became a real estate agent and uh, have been doing it ever since. It turns out I actually really like it, but you know, um, my impression was always that real estate agents were cheesy and it was like this horrible kind of blood sucking industry and I wanted nothing to do with it for a very long time. So yeah, <laughs> I love it, so there you go. Well, and I'm sure that's what set you apart from a lot of people is your ability to be more real and authentic um, and, and create those relationships. Yeah, I think one of the best compliments that I have received is when people say, you know, you're not a real, you're not like a real estate agent at all. And you know, not that I'm not proud to be part of the industry, but it's just the stereotype that I'm not like. So I think yeah. there's actually very few of us who are really like that now. I think, well, especially the people, you know, like you guys and people that I'm friends with who are definitely not the cheesy closer or whatever is, but um, yeah. It's, it's been pretty fun. Do, do you find that those types are still holding some points with maybe the older school buyers and sellers or has the whole market moved on from the, you know, whatever the sleazy line is or like the big Zach Morris cell phone in the picture? <laughs> that sort of well, there's, I mean, you know, there's a butt for every saddle <laughs> is the, you know, the slogan. So I, I really think that 
some people really like the old school, really aggressive um, closing line, high pressure agent. And as sellers, I think there's definitely an appeal to that because it feels like, oh, this person's going to close my buyer. So they want somebody who's really like punchy and edgy. And then on the other side, from a buyer's perspective, I think there are buyers who respond to high pressure sales. Um, either because they really don't know the relationship thing or that's just how they're used to doing business. Like, I, you know, I'm not a critic that I think it's wrong. I just think it's um, my people, you know, like the young, I deal with a lot of like professors and university people, a lot of relocations so people who are coming from Toronto who maybe, you know, are used to a more kind of sophisticated client experience. Those people are definitely over it. You know, there, there's no no place for cheesy lines and high pressure and all that stuff. But I think there is still a very successful, high functioning niche in real estate of that sort of stuff. So who am I to speak against it? Yeah. So you um, like how how did you get to this point where you are selling? Like, is it how, how many transactions did you do last year, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, for the last four years, I've done a uh, hundred transactions and on pace more or less to do the same this year. Um, last year was 113, which was a lot because I had uh, also started a small coaching company. So I was doing really selling more real estate, but also added another business. And this year's, you know, it's been, you know, the coaching business and the real estate. And then I haven't worked a weekend since June. <laughs> so, um, you know, we've been, it, it's kind of, you can grow, 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 grow. And most agents, you know, focus on the growth mode, but then at a certain point, it's not just about adding transactions. It's, you know, the transaction kind of stays the same, but then you start growing in other ways and you add other components to the business, mm -hmm. which is you know, really super fun. And hopefully for the people watching, especially agents that are beginning, uh, you can realize that at the beginning, yeah, you have to really work hard and, you know, build your systems and, and build a real business, which has been, you know, the real secret to doing it is building a business every day, thinking about how we can do the business part better. Um, but there does come a time where it doesn't all just have to be, oh, I'm going to sell a million houses. You know, there, there's no goal for me to be go from 100 to 200, it's like 100, but then you start to build back parts of your life. You have this great profitable business, but you also get to have holidays and weekends and family time and, you know, all the stuff that we dreamed of at the beginning. So long as you don't lose sight of it mm -hmm. and make it only about sales and real estate, because I think there's, <laughs> we can get into that later, but I think that's a big temptation in our business too sometimes. Oh, for sure. And you do this alone. You don't have a team. It's it's you. You're the solo agent, which is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And you have, but you have a backing. Like when, I guess when you first started, did you, did you know you would sell? Like, did you kind of like intend to do this, like to get up to this number or was it like a gradual progression? Yeah. Or how, how, did you, how did you get here? <laughs> Well, um, I was on a, a podcast yesterday and one, you know, we did this round robin is with a whole bunch of people and, and we all had to give our tidbit. And I said, you know, the two things that have always been central to my business have been the, a question and an action. And the question has always been, what's the point? 
you know, what is this for? Uh, for my job, the whole reason I was selling real estate is because I wanted a horse. Yeah. That's really it. Like this, it's not this complicated, you know, like to fulfill, you know, all this stuff, build a life for my family. It's like, no, I really, I just wanted a horse. Like that was like the horse behind me. Um, so every step of the way was really like, okay, if I do this extra thing, if I build this system, if I sell another house, that means I can either buy another horse or I can afford another horse show or you know, I can send my horse to a trainer that month. And, you know, as one knows, um, horses are very expensive. So you'll never find a more motivated person than someone who has horses to pay for. Mm. But the what's this all for really began with just I wanted to be in a career where I could be profitable and uh, have some flexibility so that I could go and ride horses. Then so the the what's it for question, obviously, evolved over time where you know doing everything just for horses is really great but it's kind of a selfish pursuit so but <laughs> it really is and then it became more you know what what is this for you know once i kind of started to have some success i was like oh i you know never intended to sell 100 houses a year it was never like oh you know i never wanted to be the number one remax agent in edmonton or two or whatever you know even now i'm like oh yeah that's that's kind of cool like i'm competitive a bit by nature but I never set out to have the number of houses that I sell be like a thing, which is kind of funny to me that people are like, wow, you sell hundred houses a year. And that's like, your." and I'm like, yeah, you know, it just kind of happens. I don't know. So, but the other thing that the question is, what's this for? So always having that at the back of my mind has made it a lot easier to get up and make that extra phone call and do that extra appointment. Um, I think a lot of people, shut themselves down because they don't have that in the back of their head. They're like, oh, you know, 15 a year is amazing. It's great. I'm like, I have bills to pay. I want this new cool horse. I need this thing, you know, and so I, it keeps me really motivated, but in a way where I'm really excited and happy every day, even dealing with, you know, it has been dramatic dealing with a recession for five years. And, um, you know, we've dropped our prices have dropped two to four percent every year for five years consecutively. So like I always say to sellers, it's like eating that extra muffin every day. You don't really notice it at the time. But when people bought a house five years ago and then they go to sell it and it's dropped 10 percent in value, uh, it's painful. And those conversations, as you know, you have the same conversations in your market with buyers where, you know, there it's. 2%, well, for you guys, 2% per month, basically, of prices that are going up or 3%, whatever it has been this year. But you have these little changes. And in one month, 2% doesn't seem like a lot. But 2% every month, you know, starts to compound and you start to have some real serious uh, issues where people are priced out of the market and their hearts are broken and their dreams are like literally shattered. And, you know, they are no longer eligible to purchase. And we're the same where some sellers are no longer eligible to sell. They must foreclose. They're, you know, great people, but that's why foreclosure rates are so high. Wow. So when things are tough in real estate and any scarcity in a market is tough, you know, balanced markets are our friends. <laughs> that's when, you know, it's so easy. You get a client, you sell them a house, there's no big rush. Uh, in your market, in my market, when there's scarcity, I think the the biggest thing that having that big question every day has helped me do is 
stay positive even though the news is quite negative, even though the situation is negative. You can only imagine what it's like. I mean, you know, because you talk with buyers where you sit them down and you're like, hey, what what you thought was possible for your life, what you've been planning for, for years is now not going to happen. And that's really hard for people, you know, and having the emotional resilience to do that doesn't just come from wanting to make money. You know, money, I don't think is a good enough motivator. It has to be, if I figure this out with these people, if I truly make the experience great, if I can help them, you know, somehow meet their goals, then there's this like amazing fun adventure <laughs> that I get to go on. And it, you know, it, it's such a contrast. Um, when the Vancouver market, and then I'll shut up, but when the Vancouver market crashed, I had some coaching clients who were like really solid top agents in Vancouver and their market dropped 25% in a year. And especially, you know, the houses that they specialize in. So a lot of like Kitsilano, like the, you know, kind of West and like beautiful, beautiful homes. People were obviously doing what they're probably doing in Toronto where they're leveraging against the houses. They're buying lots of investments and, um, you know, cashing out this equity that they had, but a lot of the equity was, you know, from this bubble created by foreign buyers and all this stuff. So anyway, their job used to plus one their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, every day you show up to work and the people are excited. And, you know, you show up to the sellers and you're like, we got 12 offers. This is so great. You know, the money's like flying around. You're having like a money party. Um, it's so good. And buyers are really generally, except for, you know, extreme cases, generally buyers are quite happy in a seller's market, which is really weird because you think that they would be happy in a buyer's market, but in a buyer's market, the second you sign a contract, you start losing money in a seller's market. When you win, it's so exciting because then you start making more money and you're like, yeah, I'm on this train of like exponential growth. So it's like such a big celebration. So their job had plus one their lives for so, so long. Every day they'd show up, it was exciting. It was fun. They were successful. They'd you know, just get a listing and it would sell right away and everything was awesome. But then literally like it came to a screeching halt and they had to do price reductions. They had to have the hard sit down conversations. They had to talk to everybody day in, day out and say, hey, you know, those expectations that you had, they're they're gone. You know, you can't get there. And when we feel like we don't have control is frequently when burnout sets in. Hmm. A lack of control is like the number one cause of burnout. You just feel like every day you go to work and you can't get anything done. Imagine if you were a farmer and, you know, you go out and you plant the seeds and the next day all the seeds are gone and you go out the next day and you plant all the seeds and the next day the seeds are gone. You know, you're, you're going to get frustrated after a while. So the biggest transformation that we made with them to kind of get them back on track was asking themselves that question every day. What's this for? And rediscovering their community work and they're fun. You know, the things that they do going out and going for hikes in the mountains and, you know, things that don't cost money, but help them kind of get their own plus one to bring to their customers. Cause the customers, you know, need to draw from us sometimes. And that's where we're at right now. Um, so you have to come to the table with your own energy and you have to have your own little nuclear reactor of self-fulfillment that's going on. And when you meet with people, they're like, 
you know, there's no reason why you're this happy and excited, even though you're telling us bad news, but it turns you more into a cheerleader instead of like a bringer of doom and gloom. Yeah. So we'll talk about the next one after, but um, I'll stop talking. <laughs> Sorry. Awesome. There's just there's there's so much loaded information. Like I just I've got too many questions now. We might have to make this a multi-volume <laughs> series. Uh, before we ask any more questions, there are some that have come in, and people are excited about your horse. Yes. They want to know. They want to know a how long did it take you to get the horse? B. Yes. Was your first client? Was it a buyer or a seller? If you can remember how you started. And is the third question relatable too, or will we get to that after? I haven't read it yet. Yeah, we'll maybe go get we'll to that get to one, that one later. later. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. So how long did it take to buy my first horse? So um, I bought my first horse when I was an assistant. Uh, my next horse that I bought, um, I had been selling real estate for, no, I was still an assistant um, back then. And that was the horse that really told me um, it was like a, a horse of, I'm just going to get in and do it. It was a horse that's way too expensive for my budget. I had no business buying it. Um, just in that I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was like, you know what? Life is short. I The only way that I'm going to learn is to buy something that's way out of my reach and I will come up to his level. And that was Chuck, uh, who's now you know my bestie. He has a long story. And then I have uh, three other horses. So... <laughs> There, it seems to be once every year or two, I, I seem to make another purchase, but um, they become friends and they live out at my uncle's place. So it's not like I'm boarding all of them at you know, really uh, fancy places or anything. They, they live out in a big pasture with trees and live a really cool horse life. So that's that. Okay. Um, how did I get my first client? Um, you know, I don't remember who my first client really was. My last year of being an assistant, I had my real estate license. So I was a licensed assistant and the guy that I worked for, I worked full time for him. And then I also sold real estate on the side. And I was really isolated in my practice at that time. Like I, I never saw him like do a CMA or like a seller consult or a buyer consult or, you know, any of that stuff. I just did the back end systems, admin, budget statements, all of that stuff. So when I started, gosh, I think I maybe had a seller that was my first client um, and they were just like a cold call to my office. Uh, they had a budgie that died halfway through and they almost crashed their deal because they were so distraught because their budgie died. I'm not, you can't make up the stuff in real estate. So I like bought them, send them like sympathy flowers for their budgie and <laughs> it saved the deal and everything was fine. So that, <laughs> that that's so how it worked. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome, though. I know. No kidding. Um, and then the other question is: in a seller's market, when you are helping a buyer to make an offer, what strategy do you follow to win a, the deal? Well, it's hard to believe that even here we still have seller's market segments. Um, mm -hmm. Any market, they're not completely balanced across the board. We have some areas where a property will go on, especially really the area that I work in. Mm -hmm. um, property goes on and it'll have, you know, five, six offers within the first 24 hours. So not that much unlike yours. Um, the, the most significant things that you can do are, you know, just play the game like everybody else is what I would say. Um, I don't use any special, you know, escalation clauses or anything like that. Um, the biggest advice that I have is 
the most important customer that you have at that moment, of course, is your customer. So not just about throwing any money at the situation, it is um, having setting the right expectation with your customers. So we always have what I call the no regrets conversation, which is to the buyer. And, you know, I'm sure all of you do this, but, you know, basically I say, you know, here's what I think it's going to take to win. But the real number that you have to write is your no regrets number. And that means, you know, if you get it, you're not going to feel like you overpaid. And if you don't get it, you're not going to wish you would have spent an extra 20 grand or just written that extra $20,000 and won the house. And I'll change that number, of course. If I think it's going to take an extra five, but beyond what they're thinking, I'll say, you know, 5,000 in that moment. Um, so they have to really come up with it. Then the biggest strategy is you have to know what you're doing. And I know that sounds really, you know, weird. You don't just throw anything. You have to know what market value is. You have to be very, very good at, you know, reading the comparables, reading the market, knowing, um, you know, who you're competing against. If you get that right, we get that right here where we get to know the other agents that we're competing against. So it's not just five offers, it's five offers, but, you know, I've never heard of three of them. And then I have like a serious player and then myself so i'm like okay you know these guys are all wild cards it's likely their offers are going to not win and i'll tell you why the rookie offers rarely win um it's because there's typically mistakes in them mm -hmm. and i would not let my clients touch an offer with a mistake in it with a 10-foot pole as a listing agent i will not if you can't get the address right the legal description right if you haven't triple checked everything if you're missing initials on the offer you are immediately ineligible unless your offer is like significantly more money right. and you know it's not to say that new people don't know how to write offers it's just very common that those have mistakes in them so you know i know that those ones i don't have to worry about so have the expectation conversation with your clients be perfect in your paperwork and i mean perfect it cannot have even the slightest mistake in it then there's certain things that you can do just depending on the situation. And, you know, this, of course, depends on where you're from and um, where here you can ask the listing agent questions like what's the ideal possession date for the clients? And they will tell you, you know, sometimes on the contract, it'll say, oh, 60 days negotiable. But frequently they don't actually want 60 days to the day. They want, you know, October 31st, or they want a particular day. And usually when they ask, when I ask, the agent will go and they'll tell everybody the same piece of information to be fair, but they don't always do it. And, you know, agents don't often bother, you know, even if they've had this information to make the change on the contract. So, um, you know, being perfect in your paperwork. And then the price just, you have to be, being a buyer's agent, is largely about decision management. And we, we don't really learn this. We think it's door opening management, right? Doors and light switches is what we think uh, being a buyer's agent is. And it's not buyer's agent are decision management. So it's sometimes you have to allow your clients to fail. It's the same thing with training horses. You have to allow them to make mistakes. You can't micromanage everything because how do you learn? So sometimes you have to allow them to make mistakes, but knowing that the mistake is part of decision management where you say, okay, well, you know, this happened last time. The one thing we've learned is we don't want to do the same thing and expect different results this time, do we? 
And they're like, no, we definitely don't. Like now we're on board. So don't be afraid to go with what your clients want, but don't allow that to continue on and on and on. You have to be the winner and you have to go into it with it. What's it going to take to win mindset? Not a let's just do whatever the buyer wants. And, you know, they're the they're the boss of this and they're whatever. It's like, no, no, this is what it's going to take to win. Are you here to get the keys or are you here to just go shopping? Right. You know, it's a serious business. And in your market, time is so of the essence. If people miss out, they've lost out. So, yeah. And and that's it's so important just from like the value proposition of a realtor you know as you said we're not opening the doors anybody can open a door we're the ones that have to guide them with our experience and what we've learned in the past and let them win earlier than what they probably would have if they were guiding the process so that's really important to keep in mind so i can jump into more questions and another thing too you talk about this two percent thing which is true that the moment you do lose out on something and it does happen and it should happen, but the more you lose out, you're constantly potentially caught in this conveyor belt of chasing your tail as the market keeps getting farther and farther away from you. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, it's important, like you said, to know what's going on and to use your experience to, to drive that. Now, you mentioned early on, and it's something we love to talk about is systems that you have in place and you doing this on your own, that much volume and still having time to focus on living life requires some pretty awesome backend systems that you've built for yourself. What and how did you sort of get them started and what do you depend on the most in your business that really allows you to keep trucking? Good, great questions. Um, real estate agents in general hear the word systems and often have kind of like, a meltdown. <laughs> you know, feel like they want to cry. Because ah. like, well, what is this systems? And I, I hear from agents all the time. And I'm like, okay, what's the single greatest thing that would you know impact your business moving forward? You know, what would be the game changer? And I need systems. <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay, but everybody already has systems. So I'll break it down into um think of your system in real estate as just a series of repeating events and decisions you've made about those repeating events. That's all that it is. Now, if you think about like a system in a restaurant, which is the best analogy I can give, every restaurant experience is, you know, you go into the restaurant, you know, you have a need first, right? You're hungry. So you go into the restaurant, you, you know, sit down at a table, you get the menu, you decide what you're gonna eat, you order it, uh, you eat, and then you pay, and then you leave. The only difference between a luxury restaurant, like a really fancy high-end restaurant and like McDonald's is how well the system happens. That's really it. You can run, you know, high volume, low profit. You can run high profit, low volume. You can, you know, there's any combination. You can be the mom and pop diner. Um, my goal is to be kind of that cool, like local diner that has a lineup outside. Mm. That's a you know, you create a remarkable enough experience that people are like, wow, you got to go use her. And when they call and I'm like, hey, you know, I can fit you in on Tuesday um, that they're still going to wait in line. It, it takes a special kind of thing to to, you know, and lots of experience to get to that point. But all that it is, is with buyers, you do the same thing every time. The buyers are either shopping, they're buying, you know, they're, they've actually written the offer and they're doing their due diligence or they're closing. With sellers, you're either marketing 
selling, like working on the offer or closing. That's it. Each phase is only three steps to selling and three steps to buying. Yet we make it so complicated when we don't realize, oh, this is actually really simple. Now in buying, you do the same thing every time. You, you can't really go shopping until you get pre-qualified. So, you know, every, all you got to do to have a really beautiful system is just break it down into what happens first, then what happens, then what happens. And the magic starts to happen once you have everything set out and it's going to take you four hours on a Tuesday afternoon, really, if you just yeah. sit down and put in a spreadsheet. Okay, first I do the buyer consult. You know, I, I give them my buyer. I have binder, so the buyer binder, and it has all of this stuff in it. Here's what to expect. Here's the all the sample paperwork. Here's, you know, everything I possibly want them to know is in a binder that they get. Then we go shopping, and here's how we shop. You know, there's this, there's a little system within each system. You know, you don't just willy-nilly go shopping um then after that once you've gone shopping then you write the offer then once you write the offer you know you send them the next steps hey here's your deposit here's what you do it's the same thing every time yeah so there's no excuse for someone to be like oh i have no systems because you do have a system even yeah. though i don't think you do you do <laughs> the only thing that you need to do to have better systems and to have a, you know, a machine and run a business that is proactive instead of, you know, like this, I don't even know what I would call it, like a, a poorly organized job where you're reactive all the time. It's just a plan from start to finish. That's, that's literally all it is where you're like, Oh, well, when someone removes their conditions and they're firm on a property, what happens next? Oh yeah, they need to know utilities, this and that. And then you're never dropping any balls. Now, it's easy for me to say it's really simple because I've been doing it for so long. And mm -hmm. it's like my horse trainer, like things that are so simple to him, sometimes I'm like, well, it's not really that simple to me. <laughs> I get in the weeds sometimes. And so, but the biggest thing to know is just simplify it, uh, make it, make some decisions about what you're gonna do every step of the way then the magic really starts to happen once you decide, oh, I don't have to do every one of these steps. I can hire out assistants and they can start to take on some of these steps, you know, sending the next steps emails, doing the paperwork side, you know, entering everything in and sending it to your office and setting up the showing, setting appointments, you know, getting lawyers. Like there's so many little things that you can start removing yourself from and putting it on someone else's plate and that's really what creating a business is. You know, you start in the restaurant as the, you know, they call it the chef cook and or the chief cook bottle washer or something like that, where you're doing everything. You know, the customer comes in, you're giving them the menu, you're taking the order, you're going to the back and you're cooking the food and then you're serving it to them and then you're you know getting them to pay. That's what you do at the beginning. But eventually you're going to need to hire someone to help you do any number of the jobs, <laughs> helping people get seated, giving them the menus, taking the order. A business has people that do all the things and you stay doing the thing that you're the best at. Mm -hmm. And real estate agents, the thing that we are the best at is building relationships. I'm always shocked when people have poor systems that they start, they're like, oh, well, I'm just going to have a team and I'm going to add all these buyer's agents. But what they don't realize is that they are losing business. They've lost the heart of their business. They're outsourcing the wrong part mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. And like you could outsource 
5,000 other tasks before you start outsourcing your relationship. There will come a point where, you know, you'll have to decide, well, I'm either going to have a lineup or I'm going to open another location. Um, <laughs> you're going to eventually, but I think people jump the gun and they do it way too soon because their systems aren't good enough just because they've never made decisions of what's the most highest use of their time. Yeah, no, and that's, oh my gosh, you've said so much that I'm like, oh my God, that's so true. And it's just the idea of sitting down, as you said, for four hours and just breaking it down. It's just such a simple thing to do, yet so many of us seem to be bombarded with all the other things and prioritize all of the little to-dos throughout the day that we're not working on our business. And I think a lot of realtors don't realize that that's what they're doing. They're running a business. They're not, it's not nothing else other than that. And if you don't have those simple things in place, as you said, you're just going to be chasing your tail the whole time and, and making the wrong decisions. So it's just, yeah, it's just very, very interesting. And I can see now why you've been able to do like all of the, all the transactions that you have because you've been able to figure out what makes sense to outsource and it's not the relationships, which is like, you know, like <laughs> I, I've always known that, but when you put it into words, like don't outsource the relationships and just like, wow, that that's mm -hmm. it, you know? So um, when did you hire your first uh, assistant? Well, I was an assistant for five years, as I said. So um, I hired my first assistant while I was still an assistant. So I, I had the model of being the assistant with the assistant. Now my assistant has an assistant more or less. So, um, you know, but the, the thing was I wanted to sell real estate and I had what is called being a, a, like an independent contractor. That's how I worked. So part of one of the essential elements of being an independent contractor is that you're allowed to subcontract out your work. So um, subcontracting out your work is a huge, huge thing that, you know, I, I realized I was like, oh, well, I don't need to be printing off these highlight sheets and, you know, going and running errands and dropping this off and doing this and doing this. I need to be, you know, keeping the ship on course. That was my job, you know, making sure everything was accurate and good. And so I hired my own assistant and my own assistant was my mom. Um, FYI, my first assistant, and she was a real assistant. It wasn't like I just hired her and we like hung out. And I, you know, she is <laughs> really, really, really capable human being. I always say she's like eight people in one people, one person mm -hmm. uh, for how much she can do. So I hired my first assistant when I was an assistant. Then I hired my next assistant, maybe two, three years after that, when she just started to get overwhelmed. And then I hired my third assistant who I have now, um, once the second one started to get overwhelmed. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really good. So a couple questions tied to that. First, your experience as an assistant, how valuable was that to you in learning, I guess the combination of appreciating the value of what the assistants do, but then also just the stuff that isn't the relationships, even though that's your bread and butter, would you say to people who are getting started out, not that they all need to be assistants, but you know, mm -hmm. where would you put the weight when they've maybe got less clients in them really learning the nuts and bolts of how the business operates everywhere else? Well, I can use the restaurant analogy one more time. You know, are you going to be more successful in your in years two to ten if you spent your first year in a very 
well-established, successful restaurant, you know, kind of paying your dues, apprenticing, learning what it takes, you know, oh, how do we do this? How do we, you know, prevent food waste? How do we run the front end? How do we run the back end? How do we stay profitable? And you can learn from someone who's already had 10 years or 20 years or 30 years of experience before you, or you can start cold turkey and just try and figure it all out on your own. Mm -hmm. You know, most people are so impatient. They want to start, oh, well, I have this great idea. I know how to cook a great burger at home. So I'm going to start a restaurant. I'm like, well, a restaurant is not just you cooking for people. It's a really complicated business. And real estate is exactly the same thing where I, and thankfully I worked for an exceptionally organized agent and we did a lot of things while I was working for him. You know, we tweaked his profitability because a lot of agents um, never ask the question, what's this for? They never do. And he, you know, like everybody, he was so successful and made so much money, but there were so many areas where we were able to make him more profitable. I guess it's just kind of how my mind has always worked because I sat down and I was like, well, what's the point of all of this? Aren't you trying to make a profit? Because there's, there's places that you're really not profitable. So going into a business with all of those years of experience behind me, you know, it's not like I started with one year of experience i started with 35 years of experience all kind of built into what i do and those systems a lot of the systems that i use now are systems that i was introduced to back in the day mm -hmm. so just and i can't say enough about how valuable that is you know i'm a big believer in what can you do that multiplies your efforts rather than just adds to your efforts like what are the great multipliers and one of the greatest multipliers of all time is go apprentice with someone who knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying go join a team necessarily where you're like getting leads and you're kind of on the outside and you know, that's kind of like job training. I'm talking about if you can go and be on the inside and that's what assistants are. They understand really the business side of things. And um, if you go and you do the inside of that, yeah, it's not glamorous. You know, people don't think of assistants as much. They don't think of them, you know, sometimes they're not even that polite to them. But I know, you know, it's the neck that turns the head. <laughs> it's the, they know what's going on. So yeah. could not be more valuable if you're thinking long term in your business. You're not just thinking like, oh, I need to go and make money today. If you're like, hey, I'm going to build a life for myself. You know, what's it for? Then doing that apprenticeship is going to be a complete game changer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, now, Hassan has asked a good question just about prospecting, um, door knocking, cold calling. In terms of getting started, um, I know probably most of your businesses, I'm just assuming, but a lot of repeat and referral at this point. But when you first started, um, I don't know if you, you can talk a little bit about Walkable Edmonton. I don't know if that was kind of like how you started or wh where, where did you get all of your leads um, to begin? Well, I got my leads because people saw me putting in the time and the work as an apprentice. Mm. They thought, you know, everybody I knew at the beginning, you know, I was just an assistant, I was whatever. But then they started to see, you know, wow, like you're really building something and you're working really hard. And and I became kind of a go-to person in my, you know, group of friends and in my family. And, you know, as an assistant, you can't give advice the same way, but they would always ask me questions about real estate. And they know that I was always working in real estate. 
And I gained their trust because I wasn't ever going after their business. So mm -hmm. as soon as I flipped the switch to go from assistant to agent, I had my own little mini lineup. You know, it'd be like if one of your friends went and worked at the best restaurant in Toronto for five years and you're like, you know, every time you talk to them, you're like, wow, this, you know, it's so cool. How's the restaurant? How's things going? And then they start their own restaurant. You're going to be the first in line because yeah. you already believe in them and you trust them. So that's how I really started was inadvertently, I, you know, built all this trust with people. So everybody that I knew used me right off the hop. And um, so I thankfully, because I paid my dues, I have never knocked a door. I've never done a single cold call in my life. Um, you know, I wouldn't have a hard time doing it if I absolutely had to. I mean, you do what you have to do to feed your family and, you know, I'm not opposed to it. I just think that so many people are out there picking dandelions, I call it. You know, it, it tastes bad for everybody, but it's readily available. You know, they're doing all of these kind of low level activities because, they haven't spent the time to really show their audience and show their friends group that they are really educated and they're really worthwhile uh, as somebody who you can take your million dollars and trust them with because that's that's what this business is yeah. this is not just you know the the level of skill required in a door knock versus selling a million dollar house are, are so far at the opposite ends of the spectrum. It's, it's like mind boggling that this is a big part of our industry still. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what we should be showing our customers is some value. You know, here's what I know. I've previewed every single home that's in your neighborhood. And, um, you know, here's the values. Here's what's going on. Here's cost per square foot. Here's, you know, exactly what's going on in terms of numbers. Like we're not just door openers and contract filler outers. We have to be you know, you have to be an economist in a, you know, you have to understand economics, you have to understand law, you have to understand um, accounting, you have to understand business and all these things. If you start to really get them and you show them to your group of people that you're like, hey, I'm learning, I'm uh, becoming this expert, then you get the million dollars. That's mm -hmm. when you get the trust. It's not, you don't get it from knocking on a door, as far as I'm concerned. I, I just think, you know, it's the business is so much bigger than that. Yeah, good question. And I'm not knocking people who do, right? Knocking, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, definitely. No, I, I definitely understand. And like, it, it is. It's the trust. It's the relationships. Like that's where it, it comes down to at the end of the day. So how does now Walkable Edmonton is? Is that something that's a core part of your business, or can you tell people a little bit about that part of things? Yeah. Well, I I started. I was. I'm always being obsessed with reading and marketing and learning about different things that we could do to make uh, a difference in our community and, you know, be more known, liked and trusted in one particular area. Mm -hmm. So what I had seen is that most agents um, compete and market based on competence or character. So competence is I'm the number one agent in the universe. I'm so awesome. You know, it's all, you know, ego based, right? Or it is uh, character. I'm such a great person. I donate to charity. Here's a picture of me and my dog. You know, this is what it, you know, that's traditional. And you'll always see an agent doing the dog thing, right? It's just, it's like kind of a gimmick, but those are the two main things. Now, the third one that is kind of hidden, but coming out in marketing now is uh, really a clarity based 
marketing where it says, who's the most important person? The customer. And what matters to the customer of the area that you want to work in is what you base your marketing on. So Walkabill Edmonton was an idea based on the fact that most of my clients, when I sat down with them, it's just, it's this small micro niche of people that I know. They would sit down and it's still true to this day. We'd sit down and I'd be like, okay, tell me about the property you want to buy. And they'd say, oh, I really want something that is walkable. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, I've had so many people come to me and say, oh, I'm going to start walkable Toronto. I'm like, well, that's fine. But when you sit down with your customers, what are the words that they're using to you? Who is your natural avatar? Who are the people, you know, your avatar being like your ideal client? Like who are the people that you work with? And what words are they using? Then build your marketing program about that. Hmm. My guess is that in a place like Toronto, walkability is such a given. It's not something that they come down to you and they're like, oh, we want a walkable home. They're like, yeah, duh, obviously it's walkable. So the most important thing was figuring out how can I be a sophisticated marketer in a sea of very unsophisticated marketing? Hmm. So, most of the clients that I've got because of Walkable Edmonton um, have been my ideal customer. They're people who I'm, I meet them and I'm like, oh, you're just like all my other clients, but I've never met them before. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they care about the same things as my ideal people. Um, you know, they're very community focused. They're you know, usually a lot of professors, people who are professional marketers, people who um, I want to work with. So Walkable Edmonton was kind of, that was like a decision that I made so that I could add to that silo of business. And the silo was, you know, I like working this kind of niche, cool core area. How do I get more of those people and get to be known as a go-to in that area? So that was really why I built it. Now it's not the most significant thing in my business. Cause I always think, you know, it's important to balance four or five different silos of incoming business. Mm-hmm. So, and mine are walkable Edmonton is one of them, but then, you know, repeat referral business doesn't go away. Um, and then, you know, I do a lot of um, helping and training and giving to agents and, you know, Facebook group and all that stuff. So out of town referrals is a massive silo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of those things have, have made a big difference. So when people see walkable Edmonton, the one thing I want to tell them is don't put all your eggs in that basket. Don't create something just because it's worked in another area doesn't mean it'll work for you. You first have to understand the marketing deep dive of who my ideal customer is, what do they care about, and then you reflect that back to them in a marketing campaign. And it will be successful, but it's like you're planting an oak tree or an apple tree. You know, the first year it's going to be really tiny and scruffy and not look like anything. And maybe on year three or four, you'll start to get some apples. And it won't be till year 10 where it starts to, you know, really like overwhelm you with all the apples that are coming off. And that's, that's being the progression. It's a hockey stick type scenario. Hmm. No, that's, that's good to know. It's good to keep in mind, especially for people starting out. So um, I guess, yeah, we'll wrap up. I want to tell people where they can find you. I know you've got like a lot of different, like you've got the coaching, you've got the awesome, um, badass women of real estate, Facebook group mm-hmm. podcasts. Um, so what are all those things? <laughs> um, well, the easiest thing is just find me at Sarah Kelke. So, you know, on Facebook or on Instagram, um, then I have a Facebook group called the badass women of real estate. So if you, uh, 
identify if you're a badass woman of real estate, then you can come and join us on in Facebook. Um, the podcast is badass women of real estate as well. It features interviews with, um, badass women and kind of their story and how they became so successful in whatever realm that was. Um, and my coaching company is, uh, it's, it's being kind of an evolution, but you can look it up online at sarahkalkeycoaching.com or on, um, Facebook at key real estate coaching only because people kept messaging me for real estate sales <laughs> on my, on my coaching pages as I had to change it. Um, and I'll have, I have a signature program, which is like an online group training course. Um, that's going to be coming out in November called the sell more, live more Academy. And once you join and been through the sell more, live more Academy or one-on-one -on -one coaching, then you can join, I have a membership group community called the Shine Membership Community, and it is an execution community. So we meet twice a week and you come and you do the work. It's mm -hmm. like showing up to yoga class or to your workout class where you come and all these things that we talk about that nobody ever makes time for, we actually get them done. Nice. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the breadth of the training. It's not an execution group like everyone gets together and kills people, though. Not that kind of execution. <laughs> no. To be clear, that's not happening. <laughs> we we um, knock off tasks, but yeah, I'm <laughs> people who says like kill it and you know so execution. I guess. I meant like execution. No, 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 I'm just that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I know everybody's going to get a lot of value out of this. We post this on the Facebook group afterwards. So a lot of people that aren't able to make it live will get it after and we'll put it on our podcast. So there was so much value and we really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank yeah. you. All right. We'll see you later. See you later. Hey, bye-bye. Level up, 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 level up,